You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQ. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. What we're really seeing is the increase in in telework for companies has really just sort of increased the uncertainty of what their office-based requirements are. So they're very reluctant to sign um, long-term leases. And so they're turning to FlexBase as their traditional leases are expiring. They're letting them expire. And they're they're coming to to WeWork um, to meet their requirements. And some of those may be permanent. Then again, some of those may be for a year or two while they see how this plays out and um, they put in a, you know, a, a longer term solution in place once they have a, a chance to explore and experiment with different locations um, because their employees can have different choices about which we work they go to. Uh, and they may see that, oh, well, you know, in Northern Virginia, we actually have a lot of people that like to go there. Maybe we'll take a smaller space there and maybe another space in suburban Maryland or something. They're using it as an opportunity to experiment with their longer term solutions. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. On this show, we've discussed how the pandemic has been an accelerant for digital transformation in government, and honestly, all industries. And for the U.S. federal government, which has expanded the use of telework and flexible work options, it has also been an opportunity to rethink how to right-size the federal footprint of real estate, which is why towards the end of 2021, GSA awarded a first-of-its-kind co-working spaces contract to support the evolution of the federal workforce culture. One of the companies awarded the contract is one you've probably heard of lately, WeWork. While the company has been the subject of multiple documentaries lately and has even inspired an Apple TV Plus series, which is now available, it has come a long way from its roots and did incredible work in supporting both the public and private sector during the pandemic. And in this episode, I'm grateful to have Dan Matthews, who is the former chief of GSA's Public Building Service, and now the head of the federal government practice at WeWork, on the show to talk about the work he did during his time in government, which spanned from the early 2000s as a staffer on Capitol Hill through the pandemic, where he was in charge of all federal government real estate. We're going to talk about the changes he's seeing in this area and how WeWork is positioned to support the future of government work in so many ways. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. So I'm really glad to have you here to talk about something that honestly, I think doesn't get as much visibility as arguably it should. And that's part of the physical locations that government employees work within. But as we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your previous role at GSA as as the Commissioner of Public Building Service and what ultimately brought you to the private sector and more specifically working with WeWork? Sure, happy to do that. So uh, I guess my story starts even a little before uh, Commissioner of the Public Building Service. I actually worked on Capitol Hill for a long time. I've actually been involved in federal real estate policy from uh, the congressional perspective since 1995 when my old boss was the chairman of the public building subcommittee. 
and I handled all those issues for him. And and that's the committee in Congress that authorizes all of GSA's major leases, capital projects, and you know sets policies and directions. So when I had the opportunity to become the commissioner uh, at at the Public Building Service. Uh, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity. I, I very much knew what I wanted to try and accomplish. I would I used to sum it up in, in two words. It was mission and money, right? GSA and, and federal real estate is really there to help agencies achieve their mission, but also you know, be respectful of, uh, of the taxpayer and make sure that they're doing it in a cost-effective way. And so I, I was there for just about four years and had a, we had a really successful run in consolidating some of the, the leased footprint and the owned footprint. We disposed of a fair number of buildings. Um, and, and in that environment, right, we're looking for better pricing in addition to reducing the footprint. And one of our key strategies at the time was uh, for the larger leases where they had a really long-term requirement to go after longer-term leases, which delivered a lot of uh, uh, benefits and uh, concessions and better pricing for the government. You know, then of course the pandemic hit, and that really changed uh, all sorts of things, and and really has been a massive disruptor for federal real estate and how federal employees work. And I think the government is, you know, even though we're two years into this, the government is just starting to get its hands around the real estate aspect of it. They've been struggling with the the employee aspect for a while, right? What should the future look like? Um, when things get back to normal. And I think they're just starting to really focus on the real estate side now. And it's funny. So as I speak about technology, one of the biggest narratives that I generally have is how everybody thinks of it in such a linear fashion. You look at artificial intelligence, you look at process automation, you look at all these different things. But really, it's it's a, an ecosystem. Everything's kind of brought together um, in some form or another. And I would imagine that's exactly the way this is. And it's just something that people don't always think about. We, we speak about kind of what the future of work looks like within government, but I don't think a lot of us really think about the actual physical location and what the different, uh, intricacies around the physical location really truly are. Is that something you found? Yeah, I think that's true. And again, I think the government is, is struggling trying to figure that out right now. And, and frankly, the private sector is is too. Uh, sure. I think they're just they're just they move faster, and um, and you're, you're seeing the private sector make decisions and and reposition their real estate portfolios, and embrace new technologies and flexibility for employees uh, as a result of the pandemic because it really has been um, a massive game changer. When you think about the federal government, when the pandemic uh, really kicked in and the government went. Uh, mandatory telework where it was possible. And in March of 2020, uh, GSA, we were literally buying tens of thousands of laptops and mobile devices for agencies that had desktop computers and file cabinets. And their employees were sent home and they couldn't do their work because they had to be physically at their desktop computer. So there has been a massive investment in technology to enable remote work for federal office workers. And that just was an accelerated moment in time, just created this this capability and this potential, which enables choice and flexibility in where and when employees can work. 
And that's really important for a couple of reasons. One, um, talent attraction and retention. That's always an issue in government. You know, we've, we've heard for years about the graying of the federal workforce. It's real. Um, and, you know, they're looking for, for the next generation to come and fill a lot of those, those roles. And uh, a typical government real estate space is, is not terribly appealing to uh, a lot of younger people, particularly the type of tech talent that's going to be necessary to solve government problems. So the physical space aspect of it is really important. It's, it's one of the three legs of, of that stool that creates a work environment, right? It's the technology, it's the people, and it's the place. And it's not just one place anymore where work can, can get done. So you've used the word technology a few times, or uh, flexibility, I'm sorry, a few times. Um, and I want to get to that in a second, because I think that's incredibly important. Before, before we get there, I'm really curious, while you were in your role um, as, as commissioner of PBS, how much did you lean on the private sector's actions or draw guidance from those actions around uh, consolidation or any type of movement during the pandemic? Because this is something that I can't imagine you predicted when you went into the role, right? And it was certainly, and you used the word accelerant, it was certainly an accelerant to understand more of the uh, um, CapEx within within government around uh, physical location. Did you look at other outside companies to see kind of how they were consolidating or not consolidating or what they were doing and draw inspiration from that? from that uh, guidance? Short answer is, is yes, we did turn to outside help uh, with some consultants and uh, also with, with private real estate firms to get an understanding of what other companies were doing. And, you know, that term accelerant is, is really key here. In many ways, the federal government has had a, a financial issue with federal real estate for a long time. Um, Congress is very reluctant to make available capital, to appropriate money for capital to maintain government-owned inventory. It's been a real struggle for the last uh, 15 years, frankly. And so the capital liabilities have been growing for a long time. So even before the pandemic started, uh, I had turned to um, GSA's own portfolio and had brought in some outside support from some consultants uh, we actually used Guidehouse and they brought in a couple others and they were really fabulous to work with because we needed to look at the financial viability of many of these owned assets that GSA has. When you think about what Congress is willing to appropriate money for, you look at the last 15 years, it's really quite clear what they will appropriate money for. Courthouses, land ports of entry, so these are border stations on the northern and southern border a handful of monument, monumental office spaces, right? Think um, you know, like DHS's new headquarters, that's an office space, although it's a secure yeah. campus, some of the key buildings in the DC area and a couple other locations in the country and rent. They will appropriate money for those things. Most general purpose office space, it's almost impossible to get Congress to appropriate money to maintain it. And GSA's inventory, owned inventory, is it is just about average is 50 years old. There are a lot of federal buildings out there that are not good condition, have massive capital liabilities. The demand because the pandemic has just dropped significantly. So the likelihood that GSA can fill those buildings 
And the way GSA works, they charge their government agency tenants rent, and that rent pays for everything at the public building service, pays for their salaries, pays for the utilities, pays for the cleaning of buildings, and whatever net operating income they have, that's where the capital comes from to reinvest in the inventory, but it's subject to appropriation by Congress, and Congress has shown they're not willing to give PBS capital for general purpose office-based renovations. They just don't do it. And so there was this dilemma before the pandemic about the financial viability of a lot of GSA's office buildings. And it's because of the the, the pandemic, it's even worse now. Um, That crisis, that financial crisis that's really on the horizon is getting accelerated. Um, And and GSA's got some some tough choices to make. Um, They're going to have to kind of reduce their footprint, but at the same time, they also have to keep a financially viable uh, operation when it comes to their own inventory. And uh, other than courthouses and border stations and a handful of monumental buildings, that's going to be really difficult. So they, they really need to be looking to the private sector to solve those problems because rent is one thing Congress will appropriate money for. They, they do it. Those are you know binding contracts. Government has to pay once they sign a contract. Congress will appropriate the money for that. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, situation that, that GSA faces, and it's been exacerbated by the change in how the federal government works. No, it definitely sounds like it sounds like the way you described it, it sounds like everything is kind of coming to a head. And this is a perfect opportunity for me to go back to the word that I, I mentioned before, flexibility, that I know you've brought up a couple of times. And, and I, I actually, w- when I went back and and looked at some of the things that that you had spoken about while you're a commissioner, even before you were at WeWork, you used the word flexibility. And I would have to imagine, and when I think about a company like WeWork and kind of what they do, that your belief in flexibility, that you really believe in not only the value in the mission of what WeWork does and, and what they can bring to government. So is that kind of what pulled you into that organization? Yeah, great question. Uh, tell you the truth, we work, you know, just wasn't on my radar screen in a, in a significant way until after I left government. Um, but really the last, you know, really the pandemic experience while I was in, in government, I mean, I, I could see into the future, right, as to what these big forces sure. are, decrease in demand, um, increasing capital liabilities, inability to get Congress to appropriate money for owned inventory, but they'll appropriate for rent. Right? Those big forces are were present beforehand. They're just going to get exacerbated. You know, that that identifies a, a real fiscal challenge for GSA. And uh, the solution in, in many ways is is increased flexibility. And what I mean by that is uh, GSA has a large fixed capital costs. And with changing and variable demand, and if there's one thing that increased telework does, right, when you give employees choices about when and where they work, telework is an option. What it does to the demand side is it increases the variability, right? Different people have different situations. They're going to make different choices. Those choices will change over time. So when you're a real estate person for an organization looking into the future, trying to decide what do you need in you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, 
all of a sudden that has become a very, very difficult exercise. And that need is going to, to vary over time. And so if you're trying to manage and mitigate for that, that, that risk, frankly, that change, you need to have a portfolio that has a higher degree of flexibility built into it. And a portfolio, you know, you own some of it, you do traditional leases for some of it, and then there's flex space. And so it really became apparent to me that, that the, the pandemic in particular is going to drive a need for greater flexibility within the government's real estate portfolio. It's heavily, it's heavily rooted in an owned portfolio now. That's old, has massive capital liabilities, and frankly, a lot of it's not financially um, sustainable. So you've done a really good job of kind of speaking about how the pandemic and telework has kind of influenced some of the some of the changes here. What are some of the pros and cons that you've seen around telework, and it not just influencing? kind of your role around um, office space, but just in general, as you've taken a look and, and you spent time in government for, for quite a period of time, that has obviously changed. It's not something that was normalized and now the pandemic has normalized it. When you look at telework though, what are some of those pros and cons? Yeah, so on the pro side, I would say it's created opportunities for modernization, right? I mentioned the uh, you know, the massive buy and, and technology and mobile devices, laptops, things like that. Um, that accelerated a modernization of federal government business processes. And that's still ongoing, right? There are, um, you know, most tax returns, for example, are managed electronically now, but not all of them. Um, and and that's, a, that's a challenge. It's headed towards 100% digital. Uh, you think about other big government um services, social security, Medicare, right? Modernizing those processes are critical for the success of, of government uh, and those programs in the future. So that's a huge plus that I think increased telework has sort of has driven. Um, the other piece I would say is talent attraction um, and, and retention. Government needs talent. There's an aging workforce. Uh, flexibility in when and where people can work is a huge plus for talent attraction. Every survey that we've done at WeWork and that we've seen with our partner companies and others over the last year and a half clearly shows the overwhelming majority of people want increased flexibility in when and where they work. Um, and, and that's a really important uh, factor in their decision about where they will work which companies they'll work for. So that's a really, I think, important element and increased telework uh, helps. It helps the government. And then the third one is, you know, the financial piece. Um, there are real financial value propositions, uh, both on the employee side, but also on, you know, the physical space side with uh, increased telework and the digitizing of government work processes. It, it drives costs down and, and that's also positive. What about on the uh, the con side? What what's the downside to telework? And I, I think we've all probably read articles about there's certain people or certain factions of the workforce that need that physical interaction and and totally appreciate that. So that's that's one that maybe yeah. you can say is a tangible change. But are there other cons to people working remotely and not being in a physical space? Yes, I I think we're 
also seeing that in a lot of these surveys. There is a certain percentage of every organization that does not have a good work from home environment. It may be because they're younger and they have roommates and they're an expensive city uh, where you know apartments are small, like New York, San Francisco, frankly, even DC now and a lot of other places. Uh, or you know there may be uh, young families with, with children or multi-generational households. For whatever the specific reason, the surveys, the data seems pretty clear. There's probably 10, 15, maybe even a larger percentage of almost every organization that home is not a great alternative. Um, and that's where, where frankly, having a, a locational flexibility other than your home or you know the core office building, the legacy office building, a, a sort of a, a third choice, a, a work from near home uh, solution is important because otherwise, you know, the flexibility and the benefits of telework, they accrue, you know, if you're a middle manager with a four bedroom house in the suburbs, it's great. You love it. But if you've got three roommates, uh, you know, then maybe that means no, really the only a practical solution is working from the office. And so you don't get the flexibility that the rest of the organization does. And that's a real issue. I think it's going to become more apparent over time there. And then, like you were mentioning, uh, people don't don't necessarily want 100% remote. There are certain percentage of the people that very much enjoy getting together. Uh, I think it's a very high percentage, just the amount of time that they want to get, get together. We see it really varies in the surveys that we're, that we're looking at. So let's let's pull government out of the equation for a second. How has how has telework cuz obviously the private sector had to adapt to this, right? And in WeWork serves multiple industries. How has telework affected WeWork from from that vantage point? Cuz I would imagine that as people didn't have a a place to call their home office for a period of time, and then also were struggling with maybe the scale at which they had to have policies to uh, to have an entire workforce to come back, that places like WeWork were a great opportunity for them to get out of the situations like you just mentioned. I live in the city. I have multiple roommates. I need to go to a location. Is that something that really affected WeWork and their business during the pandemic? It, it did. So I started in, in May of 2021. So um, the early part of the pandemic, I didn't see firsthand, but I, I obviously have gotten up to speed since I've been there. And um, I'll just give you a, a great anecdote. In, in New York City, early on, right, the pandemic was very bad there. Uh, and and so you had a, pretty much everybody sent home from companies to work at home. And that's a place where particularly younger workforce, they've got a lot of roommates. So it, it was, I think it was tough, a real pain point for companies. Um, but because people were going home, maximum telework, a lot of the WeWork buildings also de-densified, right? People, people left. And so that created an opportunity for some pretty big companies. I won't name their names, but they came to WeWork early on and said, we need an alternative to working from home for a large percentage of our employees. And we were able to um, basically show that they're given there are so many WeWorks in, in the New York City area within the five boroughs that something like 90 some percent of their employees are within a 15 minute walk or, or like bike ride from um, a WeWork. And so um, they turned to WeWork 
to create a distributed model almost immediately so their employees had an alternative. And the densities were very low in our buildings at that time. And, you know, we, we had adopted a, like Bureau of Veritas cleaning and, and um, uh, cleanliness standards and health standards in our buildings early on. So they had a good, safe place to go uh, to work and, and get out of their kind of not so great home environment. That was on the early end. Georgetown University, actually here in the D.C. area, uh, they went fully remote. Their students had a scramble. They got kicked off campus. They didn't have a place to live. They ended up in lots of you know basement apartments and things like that with bad Wi-Fi. They didn't have a reasonable place to study or get good access for um, virtual classes. They took, uh, Georgetown took like 6,000 all access passes, gave it to their students all across the globe, actually. And then all of a sudden, um, Georgetown students had, uh, you know, a great place to go with solid Wi-Fi and places to study. It worked out really well for them. That was kind of in the, in the middle of the pandemic. And then, um, you know, later in the, in the pandemic, uh, what we're really seeing is, you know, the, the increase in, in telework for companies, um, has, has really just sort of increased the uncertainty of what their office space requirements are. So they're very reluctant to sign um, long-term leases. And so they're turning to FlexSpace as their traditional leases are expiring. They're letting them expire and they're, they're coming to, to WeWork um, to meet their requirements. And some of those may be permanent. Um, and then again, some of those may be for a year or two while they see how this plays out. And um, they put in you know, a, a longer term solution in place once they have a, a chance to explore and experiment with different locations um, because their employees can have different choices about which we work they go to. Uh, and they may see that, oh, well, you know, in Northern Virginia, we actually have a lot of people that like to go there. Maybe we'll take a smaller space there and maybe another space in suburban Maryland or something. Um, they're using it as an opportunity to experiment with their longer term solutions. And then the then the uh, kind of third spectrum is those companies that have decided to go um, all remote or mostly remote. Even all remote companies, they're basically turning to to a company like WeWork to be their real estate provider. They want to get together, you know, once a month, once a, once a quarter. Um, they don't want a permanent real estate footprint to do it. They want to change their locations up, different markets. Um, there's some companies that literally went all remote during the pandemic, and they decided to stay all remote. And they use us for uh, what we call all access passes, meaning their employees can drop in whenever they want to at any WeWork. And then they come together as a group, you know, on a, a regular basis and they just, uh, you know, rent the space for a week that they need. Something that you said in there was fascinating. It's organizations kind of not knowing what they needed. And I can imagine that the government is definitely on that list of organizations not knowing what they're going to need, whether it's a policy, whether it's just people's propensity for coming back. And we touched on earlier, you talked about multiple factors that go in into government work. Um, you characterize it maybe something different. I, I usually think about it across work, workforce, workplace. And in the workplace scenario, one of the pieces of technology that I think about is the Internet of Things, IoT. How much have you seen government organizations leaning on IoT to understand the future needs of their agencies? Because I would imagine when they're taking a look at what they need 
yesterday, now, and tomorrow, those look very different and they need to have some type of data point to point to, to understand what that capacity looks like. And I, I would imagine that IOT is something that could support that. Is that something that you're seeing? I, I think you're right. I will say government has been very slow to adopt it um, for a variety a of reasons. Thing? Yeah, I would say, is that a policy thing or what do you think there? Some agencies adopted it pretty quickly. GSA was one of them. Others, very reluctant to do it. Um, the, the, a couple of different reasons for it. There, are, there can be privacy concerns, although sure. I think oftentimes that was uh, an argument that was put forward by agencies who just didn't want the data, um, and they would point to privacy concerns. Um, there are plenty of technologies out there that don't collect personally identifiable information and can give you good utilization data. So I think it's a, sort of a false objection, but um, that's one thing that was raised often. Um, but pre-pandemic, I think you had agencies that oftentimes uh, were afraid that that data would result in um, a push to reduce their real estate and they didn't want the data as a result. Um, I, I think the pandemic is changing that because even agencies that may have been in that position before, now they realize um, uh, they have so much uncertainty about how it's been used during the pandemic, what they may need in the future that they need to um, they, they need better information. The problem though is retrofitting spaces is not cheap. And, and so agencies get caught in a catch 22. Uh, their spaces now probably don't have um, much of that in the way of collecting utilization data. To put it in place in the inventory that they have now, which is, is not being utilized very much, it's probably a tough sell internally for budget reasons. Um, what we find a lot of companies are doing, I, I say if the private sector is different from the public sector, I would say the private sector was much faster in um, downsizing during the pandemic, right? If a lease was expiring, they'd let it go. They yeah. wouldn't hold on to it. Um, government gets a little more paralyzed in this decision-making process, tends to hold on to it. Um, you haven't seen a lot of reduction during the pandemic, actually, in the, in the government space yet. You have seen it in the private sector. That's why vacancy rates are so high now in, in a lot of markets. Um, and so agency, or I'm sorry, the private sector would cut. Uh, and now as they're, they're, they're coming back into the office market, right, oftentimes they'll come to a company like WeWork and we give them a really robust utilization information. And it's really interesting because it's not just about in a particular building, like how much space, how many people are coming into a particular building. But with something like WeWork, when you buy into WeWork, you're buying into a global platform of locations. So the, the member companies have the ability to go into different locations. And so what you see, the kind of information that they get, isn't just how many people are coming in, what kind of spaces are they using? How often are they using meeting rooms? It's also where are they going? Are there clusters of people, say take the Bay Area, for example, that are really hitting the, you know, the, the peninsula locations? Or is it more in the East Bay or in the South Bay, all which are pretty far apart commuting wise? 
And that's a real pain point for employees commute, you know, when they all had to go to, you know, say one building downtown San Francisco. And now they're saying, gosh, actually, we have a lot of usage here in, in the East Bay area, another pocket in the South Bay, and then, you know, maybe in San Mateo or, you know, in, in the peninsula. And they're using that to then inform what they do next. Maybe they'll take small dedicated offices in those three locations in addition to their their you know, original office space, which they have now shrunk by 50%. And um, they can we can quantify the commute times that'll be reduced, the frankly, even the carbon emissions that'll be reduced as a result. And all of those things are really important in their considerations of what they want to do in the future, because they don't necessarily want to go back to telling everyone, yeah, you all have to um, commute all the way back to, you know, the headquarters in San Francisco, even though that may be an hour and a half for, you know, 40% of our employees. So we've touched a lot about the challenges that are happening right now in the industry. If you were to look kind of more forward facing over the next five to 10 years, where do you see some of the biggest challenges that you need to address over, over that period of time? Um, so are you talking about government, uh, government real estate? I assume. Yeah, yeah, government real yeah. estate, um, and just kind of the the understanding of round consolidation and things like that. Yeah, so the really the big macro level challenges facing government real estate, and I'm really focusing on on office space here, right? Is it's aging? It's fifty plus years old, has gargantuan capital liabilities. Um, there's a declining demand for it, and they really struggle to get capital from Congress to maintain it. So as a result, the government has a real talent attraction problem um, because bringing you know, a recent college graduate into a typical GSA-owned space, uh, not very appealing. And they also have this looming financial crisis. When you think about, think about right, GSA charges its tenants rent, has large, very large fixed costs, capital liabilities. You can see the problem when demand and revenues decline. So Big picture, macro level, the solution to that is to reduce those fixed costs and capital liabilities and replace a certain percentage of them with variable costs that are tied to revenue. So 10 years from now, the future could be very bright for federal real estate, right? I would see GSA's portfolio, own portfolio being smaller. It's really focused on those types of assets, which Congress has shown repeatedly they're willing to fund and maintain. Those are courthouses, uh, land ports of entry, and um, you know certain monumental buildings, but it's not traditional office space. Um, and, uh, and then have a larger percentage of that office space requirement being met by traditional leases and a certain percentage with more flexible terms in order to mitigate against the the lack of certainty as to how much space they need over time, you need a release valve to adjust for that that uh, uncertainty. And flexible space is is how the private sector is mitigating that. That's why flex space as a percentage of the commercial office space market was rapidly growing before the pandemic. And I think we're going to see it's going to it's rapidly growing. During the pandemic, we're capturing more market share than traditional leases now. I think that's just going to continue coming out of the pandemic. Um, and so this allows, that type of strategy would allow the government to buy quality space as you need it and let it go when you don't. And, and that also ups the, 
the quality of the space, less quantity, but higher quality, which is really important for the for the talent attraction piece for federal employees. I think the alternative, if 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 they kind of ignore those basic fundamental forces on federal real estate, uh, it could be pretty bleak for federal employees, right? If if they just hold on to all that owned office space, you're, the opposite will happen. Uh, more employees will be housed in really tired federal buildings that they can't maintain because they they can't get the capital to do it. And as demand drops, um, revenues will drop. It's a downward spiral, and I think that will be that would be a mistake. It'd, it would be very difficult for um, for federal employees, I think, uh, and for uh, attracting newer federal employees. What's interesting to me is, I mean, I'm, I'm probably like a lot of listeners where I, I've watched a few of the documentaries on WeWork over the past couple of years, um, the, the good and the bad. And, and part of it, as I was watching it, I couldn't understand a lot of the relation to to perhaps all of the markets. And, and what's very interesting as we're talking here is I the tangibility of how a company like WeWork can affect the future of government work is is very is very easy to see for me, right? There's such an uncertainty around the not only telework, but but like you're talking about the fluid nature of of buildings and even giving the government and th- this is this to me is the biggest benefit, giving the government the agility to make those decisions across a period of time, to me, that's the biggest benefit. They don't have to say today, this is the decision we're making and we expect this to be what it is over a 10-year period. They can approach it knowing, hey, we don't have all the answers. We know the pandemic has changed a lot and we need to understand that this might be a fluid environment over this period of time. Is that something you're kind of feeling, especially since you, you came from government, now you're moved into private sector? Do you, do you feel that change? I think you have put your finger on, in a way, the most immediate problem facing federal real estate professionals. They're, I think their big macro level problem is, is what I just described, right? The capital issue, decline demand, things like that. But the most immediate problem is they don't know what they need two years from now or five years from now. And as a result, they can't make long-term decisions and realign the portfolio because the only tools that they use require long-term decisions, right? If you own something or build something, you need to know that you're gonna be using it for 30 to 50, 60 years. Otherwise, you cannot justify that type of capital expense. And with a traditional lease, you know, the time horizon shortens, but it's still, you know, it's 10 to 15 years. They're just not in a place to make those decisions and they're not going to be. Um, and so they need a, they need an alternative that allows them to pivot today, right? And start realigning their portfolio and have a fluid set of commitments that allows them to adjust as their needs evolve because they are going to evolve what the government needs today is not going to be the same as what it's going to need next year. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably smaller right now than 
hopefully it will be next year or the year after that. And 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 right now they just don't have a tool, a traditional lease and ownership, recapitalizing buildings they have right now is too slow. The terms are too long and they require a lot of capital up front, which which they don't have. It seems hard to believe, but in this environment where literally trillions of dollars are flying around in the federal government, um, GSA, other than courthouses and, and land ports of entry, could almost not get any capital out of Congress to maintain their existing inventory. I think that just speaks volumes about the um, the future. They couldn't get money in this environment. <laughs> but they're not going to get money for those types of things three years from now. It just isn't going to happen. They need to be able to pivot and they need another tool to do it. I, I think you're, you're spot on. The irony there is that's something that they're starting to pick up and do within the technology space, right? The, the, the real estate industry is a very different area of focus, I think it sounds like, within government. Um, in the technology space, they're doing a better job of understanding and experimenting and piloting things and figuring out if they're fit for purpose in government. And I think that's something that perhaps we work can do for government, drive that kind of if quote unquote piloting of certain workspace and certain demographics and areas. And um, it could certainly drive a change in how the government approaches buildings and, and capital expenditure. It's it's so analogous to what you just described with technology. Traditional government procurement for technology, the cycle time is longer than the useful life of, of software, right? So it's this five-year procurement cycle ensured that what you get when you finish the procurement is now obsolete when it comes to software. So there are some areas of the government that are really adopting more agile software development and procurement strategies to compress that cycle time so that they can acquire, you know, in a fraction of, of what they used to acquire. And so the software is really relevant when it, it actually, um, you know, is delivered to the operational units. And um, we're actually, at WeWork, we've been partnering with a variety of, of uh, software companies and, and small defense startup companies. That is their niche in the security space, um, they are helping government um, develop agile software solutions in a matter of months um, for some really thorny operational problems. And um, some of them are calling it literally modernization as a service. And it involves uh, hardware, so you know, computer hardware, software, um, a combination of, of their development of it and government coders and physical space. And, and so modernization as, as a service. So if you're a government end user that has a need to modernize some process, uh, but you don't have all the expertise in how to d- develop agile uh, software and you're not a real estate person, these companies are sort of of putting these solutions together in a turnkey uh, contract vehicle that then an, an organization can buy, you know, on a yearly basis to to drive results quickly, and it actually includes, um, you know, space as part of that that package. That's that's really interesting how you're kind of coupling those together. 
Hey, Dan, uh, I really appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, I guess given what we're talking about, is probably pretty obvious, right? The, the pandemic has really turned uh, federal office space upside down. Uh, and, you know, and in the process, it's really forced the government to, to go mobile and upgrade its IT. And that's a great thing. It's good for government. It's good for taxpayers. And, you know, I think there's just, just a huge opportunity to take to take those implications to uh, office space uh, and help the government realign it, which is also good for their employees and good for taxpayers ultimately as well. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And and I, I appreciate you kind of shedding some light on, like I said in, at the very beginning of this, on an area that I think doesn't get the type of focus that it needs and everything's interrelated. And obviously capital expenditures expenditure around buildings and, and where the workforce is actually physically doing their job is an important conversation. So I'm glad you can come on and shed some light there and, and help us understand how that kind of fits in the large puzzle around what the future of government work really looks like. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcasts or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.